All right. Uh, I'm Aaron Chesmar. You probably see me running out of the sanctuary every Sunday because we're chasing kids around. Yeah, we trade off. <laughs> Liam's getting closer to making it through the service. Benjamin, not so much. Um, uh, as I mentioned, I teach at CBCA. Um, I teach biblical Greek and engineering, an unlikely combination. Um, but I get to spend a lot of time with high school students. And before that, I was the youth pastor at a church in our presbytery. And so this question comes up a lot. What should we believe about vocation and calling? And I don't think this is a question just for high school students um, or college students. I think this is a question for all Christians to consider. One, like, in what you're doing, how can you be serving God? And then two, like, how do we know what we're supposed to be doing? How do we know, like, where, where we're supposed to be or we're within God's will or we've married the right person or any of these things? So um, that's kind of the overall question we're asking tonight. What should Christians believe about vocation and calling? And to answer that question, I'm going to a- ask a few more questions. How did God design work? How does the gospel, um, how has work been distorted? How is the, does the gospel restore work? And then how do we know our calling? So uh, the first one is how did God design work? Uh, you can have your Bibles out. We'll be jumping around um, throughout the Bible. Um, the first two passages, passages are from Genesis 1 and 2. Um, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So the first one, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the earth, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And if you skip to the next chapter, Genesis 2, verses 15 through 18, we read, The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the first observation we can make is that God made work good. God made work good. Work is not a result of the fall, even though it feels like it at times. Um, Work is good. It's what we were created to do. And the second observation we can make is asking the question, what does work encompass? And it's it's, it's much farther than what we do for a living. Here we see four categories that God describes as work as our job in this world so firstly we see vocation 
which Adam is farming and he's naming animals. He's doing these things that God has tasked him with. Um, one, to make a living so he has food to eat. And then um, two, exercising that sort of authority um, that God has tasked him with and ruling over the animals, naming them, and um, being God's image bearer throughout creation. And second, we see um, family and relationships. Work encompasses family and relationships. Um, God tells Adam it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not it's not good for human beings to live outside of community, right? And obviously the most intimate community is with a spouse, with a family. But overall, human beings need each other. That's what the church is, right? It's our family, it's our community, it's our home. Um, God says that human beings must be in community with one another. And he says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Human beings are not supposed to just stay sequestered in this one area of Eden. They're supposed to spread out and fill the entire earth. Thirdly, we see that Adam has priestly service. Um, In Genesis 2, verse 15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That word, keep, I think is um, not entirely a clear translation. This is the same word used for Levitical priests as they are to keep the tabernacle and the temple free of impurity, free of evil, free of uncleanness, free of anything that would defile God's holy places. And so God tells Adam, Eden is our sanctuary, right? I can be with you here. I will live with you. I dwell with you. I'm going to walk with you. But you need to keep, guard the Garden of Eden. And so when Adam sees evil, the serpent, right? The serpent should have been killed on the spot because that's Adam's job to keep evil out. And he lets it in. And then temptation begins. And then it's too late for him to stop and um, humanity falls. So priestly service, guarding, keeping evil out. And then lastly, dominion and cultural activity. Human beings were created to rule as if they were God, right? They're the image of God. They are to extend God's rule to the ends of the earth. If human beings had not fallen, right? They would have been tasked with building that city, that heavenly city we know as New Jerusalem in Revelation. Um, they, we would have skipped all of this mess, right? That we currently find ourselves in. We would have gone straight to living with God forever, um, with the earth full of people perfectly obedient to Him, you know, never knowing any of the pain and suffering we experience. That is what God created Adam and Eve for. So those four things, vocation, family and relationships, priestly service, dominion and cultural activity are all part of our task here on earth. All part of our vocation. So the question is, how has work been distorted? What happened? How did this get messed up? 
And we see this in Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19. Genesis 3, 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now if we skip to the New Testament and Romans, Romans eight nineteen through 22, Paul says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not wittingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So these two passages paint a pretty devastating picture. Um, Namely, that shalom, peace, has been broken. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uses this concept of shalom to describe perfect unity and wholeness and completeness. Um, Us in perfect relationship with one another, human beings, right? Us in perfect relationship with the natural world around us. And then both the natural world and us in perfect relationship with God. That's the the, um, Hebrew version of perfection, of heaven, right? All of those things being um, whole, complete, without um, crack or fissure. And yet, we see that shalom, peace has been broken in all of the four areas that we just looked at. In vocation, we see thorns and thistles. Adam can't do his job without um, bloodying his hands, without the sweat of his brow, without back-breaking work, right? Farming is back-breaking work. And um, it doesn't let up. It doesn't get easier. Family and relationships, we see that a power struggle has been introduced. God tells Eve, you shall desire your husband, but he's going to rule over you. You're not going to be equals anymore. You're not going to be loving each other um, in perfect relationship anymore. He's going to be ruling over you. There's going to be domination. There's going to be problems because of sin. And we also see, um, even in the most... um, Delightful, joyful moments of life, childbirth, there's pain, greatest pain. Um, And then moving down to priestly service, I mentioned that Adam and Eve are supposed to keep evil out of the garden. What happens to them? They get kicked out of the garden, right? Those who are supposed to be guarding the garden get kicked out because they are the evil ones. They're the impure ones. They have introduced wickedness into the world and they cannot stand in God's presence any longer. And then Paul tells us, uh, 1 
for dominion and cultural activity, creation is groaning. Everything you do, like if you're an engineer, you design a building, you design the building knowing that it's going to fail at some point. So you have to design it with that failure in mind. How am I going to create redundant systems so that it doesn't fail quickly? Or when it does fail, it doesn't fail catastrophic, catastrophically? I don't know. Catastrophically? It's a big word. It's too late for that. <clears throat> um, anything you do, right? If you, uh, you see the weather around us, um, hurricanes, fires. I lived in California for a time. That was fun. Fires, like, every time we were about to take exams, didn't know if your stuff was going to still be there after you were done. But uh, creation's groaning. There's problems every time we try to make something last. The world's breaking down. So this piece that was at the beginning, that encompassed all of these four aspects of vacation, is gone. And secondly, work becomes pointless. Probably my favorite book of the Bible is Ecclesiastes. Um, I just think it's, one, I think it's really real. And two, I think it's incredibly profound. Um, spend a lot of, t- I love spending time in that book. And Ecclesiastes introduces us to this perspective called Under the Sun. And the Under the Sun perspective is life imagined in a naturalistic, godless universe. Can you have meaning in a naturalistic, godless universe is the question that Kohelet, the preacher, asks. And in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17, he answers that question. Can you have meaning in a godless, naturalistic universe? Kohelet says, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes says, if you're living life outside of this, um, with, without God at the center, um, in a naturalistic universe, there's absolutely no meaning. Everything that is done is vanity and a striving after the wind. It's like running, trying to um, hold on to wind. That doesn't work out very well. It's going to slip right through your fingertips, right? And Ecclesiastes also shows us that work becomes both mechanical and oppressive. So if you look at um, four, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, we see work outlined as mechanical. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Or you, get, you can get caught on the treadmill of life, where you're like, I go to work, it's what I do. And, then, and you don't know why. There's no, you've, you've exhausted yourself climbing a ladder to nowhere where you have no one to share your wealth with. 
You have no meaning outside of your job, and yet your eyes are never satisfied with the riches you earn. And so, and you become so dull to the fact that you never ask, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. You can become a cog in the machine. Right? Our culture is very good at that, making cogs in the machine. And then Ecclesiastes uh, tells us that work can become oppressive. You look at the next chapter, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are yet higher ones over them. Just think about, think about that sentence for a minute. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and violation of justice and righteousness. Okay, pause there. What do you expect a biblical author to say? Yeah, like get rid of it. Do something about it. What does Ecclesiastes say? Do not be amazed. And this is how the world is. Um, you've noticed oppression of the poor, violation of justice. Well, that's because someone has power. And they're using that power to oppress those underneath them. Oh, and what if you go talk to the person above him? Oh, he's using that power to oppress the people under him. Well, what if you go all the way to the top? Well, that person's the greatest oppressor of them all, right? Because sin has thoroughly permeated society, and we should not be amazed at the matter. That life without God, life in a naturalistic universe, turns us into cogs in a machine, and it gives people with power the desire to dominate others instead of caring for them, instead of loving them, instead of treating them with that sense of peace um, that the Hebrew Bible outlines, the Old Testament calls us to. So, Shalom's been broken. Work becomes pointless. And therefore, work becomes selfish. You know, right after the flood, uh, we're introduced to um, humanities living on this plane. Um, in Shinar. And the first thing they do is they're like, let's build a tower. Why are we going to build a tower? To make a name for ourselves. This is craziness, right? Like, the, in recent cultural memory, a flood has wiped out all of humanity. And their response to that is, okay, God, you got us. We're going to come up there and get you. Right? We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower that reaches into heavens, and we're going to tell you how it is. That is insanity. And yet, how many of us go about our days making a name for ourselves instead of making a name for God? Work becomes a means of feeding our idols of comfort, of power, of... Um, of having this sense of pride that we're making that we are making it we're doing what we're supposed to be doing we can turn our families into our idols we can turn our jobs into our idols we can turn everything around us as a means of creating meaning instead of looking to god for meaning and work becomes a means by which we can pursue easiness over goodness i think of uh, Paul in um, Philippians, he tells them 
that he has joy. Like, he knows what's good. He encourages them to pursue the true and the good and the beautiful. And yet, what has Paul done? Paul's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He's, um, it seems that he's been beaten so badly that his eyesight has been compromised because he writes with really big letters to uh, the Galatians because he can't see. Um, he's not good to look at, right? All of the physical things in this world have been taken from him. He's poor. He doesn't have a place to go, lay his head down at night. He relies on people to give him a place to stay. And yet he has what's good. He has what's true. He has what's beautiful. And that's enough for him. And is that enough for us? And we're not called to do what Paul, live a life like Paul. Maybe you are. Most of us probably are not. But do we get distracted from the easiness of this world instead of pursuing true goodness, true beauty, true riches? Okay, so that's the bad news. Um, what's the good news? How does the gospel restore work? Firstly, it gives us a new meaning. Ecclesiastes has an alternative perspective to work under the sun or life under the sun. It's life as the gift of God. So in Ecclesiastes 5.19, the author writes this, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Notice this is the exact opposite of what he had said earlier. He says, if you have wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, but you're under the sun, you're without God, you have vanity. You have nothing. But if you have wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and yet you know that it's from God, then rejoice. Rejoice in your toil because you have meaning that transcends this life. So work as the gift of God becomes a foretaste of the world to come. Consider how your profession shows the beauty of the world to come. Consider how, um, for example, I'm a teacher. In the, in the world to come, people will be endlessly curious about God. Right? I won't have to do all sorts of tricks to keep them interested. Right? I won't have to create all of these games. They'll want to know more and more about God for eternity. Right? And they'll never get tired of learning about Him. They'll never get tired of loving Him. And they'll use everything they learn to better love themselves and love others in a perfect world where we have a peace between ourselves, the world around us, and God. People will be endlessly curious about what they learn, and they'll use it to love others. That's pretty awesome. Think about how, that, how your profession can, show, can be a foretaste of the world to come. If you're an engineer, are you going to, like, in the world to come, we won't have to create all these redundant systems for things to break down because things will not break down. It will be awesome. Um, in your family, 
think about a world in which there's no pride between husband and spouse, right? There's no desire to be right and rule over the other one, which is, seems to be our default tendency. Not, not my marriage, of course, but all of you people that still have to get better. <laughs> um, you, can, you can be a, a kind of person who doesn't get frustrated when things don't go your way. As a parent, it seems like I can be tempted to throw temper tantrums when things don't go my way, just like my kids. Um, there's a world in which we will have perfect, a perfect view of God, where He will see us for who we are. We will see Him for who He is without sin, without um, all of this all of this suffering in between us and Him, where we'll desire Him fully, not twisting it, not using Him for what He can give us, but just wanting to know Him, just loving Him. Um, how, does your, how does your, what you're doing in this world, beyond your job, how is your walk with Christ mirroring that? Are you pursuing that? Are you wanting to know God for who He is and loving Him and loving others as He calls you to love them? How are you doing that now? Because that's what we'll be doing for eternity. And the same also applies to how we take care of the world. Right? The world, God cares about the world. And um, in the world to come, the world will be perfect. There won't be um, constant damage done to it. It will be, we will be able to live with the natural world without doing devastation to it. And it will be a beautiful thing. All right. So we have a new, um, a new meaning for work. We also have a new focus for work uh, from an internal, selfish perspective, which is under the sun. Like, what am I getting out of this? to external, humble, how can I be using my gifts to serve others? We work so that we can love our neighbors. I love this passage in 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, verses 12 and 13. It's kind of like a throwaway verse, right? We don't spend much time looking at it, but I, I, I love it. Because Paul writes, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not weary in doing good. Why, why do you work quietly? So that you can earn your own living, so that you cannot weary in doing good. Can you do good to others if you yourself have nothing like if your needs are not met, can you be out there serving others? It becomes a lot harder, right? If there's no food on your table, if there's no roof over your head, how are you going to be providing that for others? So Paul says, work hard, right? Work industriously. Working hard is a positive virtue, right? It's a good thing. And it can become an ultimate thing. We can twist it. We're really good at twisting it. But it's a good thing because it enables us to care for those around us. 
And then finally, the gospel gives us a new power for work. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit living in your hearts. And the Holy Spirit is working within you to produce His fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you may not notice Him working in you right away, but over decades of time, not like 24 hours, but a long periods of time, you should notice these, pa- these patterns starting to take place where the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and He's re- starting to remove some of that sin, some of those patterns of you opposing God, of you being prideful and selfish and replacing them with His fruit. Over long periods of time, we should start to become more and more like Him more and more like Christ. And and Christ is our ultimate guide, right? He left the riches of heaven. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So therefore, he humbled himself and became one of us. He had compassion for the least of these. Do we? Do you care for the people who society calls less than, who you think maybe are less than? Are you opening your heart to see, to love people, regardless of social status, regardless of belief, regardless of where they come from? Jesus loved the least of these. He loved tax collectors. He loved people with different political beliefs. He loved people who came from all over Israel. He loved Samaritans. He loved Romans. He loved demon-possessed folks. He loved all of them. Do we? And Christ had this characteristic of serving rather than being served. He washed His disciples' feet. That's how He pursued His ministry on earth. He was humble. He had compassion. He served rather than being served. So with all these things being said... It's like vocation in a large picture. How do we then know our calling? And maybe um, I think the most important thing I want you to take away from tonight is that we have two categories for God's will. Two categories for God's will. They are God's secret will and God's revealed will. Um. You can look at the passages that I've listed. I'll go through them quickly. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah write, or the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Um, God says, like, my will is higher than yours. You, you can't see it. I'm so far above you that you, we're, we're on, operating on different planes, right? On different spheres, This is God's secret will, God's knowledge and ordination of all things to ever happen. God is sovereign. He knows all things. He ordains all things to ever happen. And for us, we can never and should never want to know it. So the question comes, like, Should I ask God for a sign, like, so that I know 
that I'm like walking in his in in his ways? And the answer is maybe, but God has given us his revealed will. And this is this is a beautiful passage here, Deuteronomy 29 verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. God's revealed will is the full scope of what God commands of us in Scripture. So what are you supposed to do? Love God perfectly and love others perfectly. That's what Jesus summarizes the law as, right? Just do that and you'll be fine, right? It's great. Um, Good luck. Um, So we have the law. We're supposed to love God perfectly and love others perfectly. And we know, we know we don't add up to it. So God has saved us through the gospel. He's kept the law perfectly on our behalf, knowing that we can't do it, so that by faith in Him, we receive all of Christ's righteousness. He kept the law. Instead of us having carrying our sin on our backs, we give it to Him, and He gives us His righteousness. And then... He starts shaping us with the fruit of the Spirit. So the question should become, not am I in or out of the will of God? The question is, am I following God's revealed will? Am I following His Word? Am I loving Him? How In this decision that I'm going to make, How am I loving him and how am I loving others? That is the question every single time. It's not, God, you can't run outside of the will of God because he ordains all things that will ever happen. You can't do it. It's impossible. God always is holding you in his hand. And no matter what happens, no matter what you choose, no matter how many times you mess up, you're still in his will because he's got you. He cares for you. He will never let you out of his hand. So, I think that, that I think is the most important distinction. Where I see high schoolers, where I see college students, where I see young Christians messing this up and getting worried is when they start conflating God's secret will with his revealed will. And really, the but the the way we get better at this is using wisdom to make decisions. I'm not going to go through the rest of the guide because I don't want to keep you all night. But what is, the, what is the category for how we make decisions? It's wisdom. And wisdom is a skill. It's not an ethereal, like sort of uh, pie-in-the-sky secret knowledge that we have to obtain. It's the skill of living life well. And the way we live life well is in community with others. By surrounding yourselves with Christians who are from all different walks of life, gaining from their experience, you start to get wisdom. You start to become skilled in making good decisions that better love God and better love others. So that's where we're going to leave uh, tonight. How we, what, do, what should Christians believe about vocation and calling? One, it's more than just doing a job. 
It's about serving God in all aspects of your life here on earth. And two, you can never run outside of God's calling. Right? We can run we can turn away from him. We can make bad decisions. But you can never be outside of the will of God because he has you in his hand if you believe in him. And he's never going to let you go. All right. Uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for this group um, that's here to hear your word. Even in the, even in the evening, when uh, there's Monday is quickly coming, when we have other things on our mind, I thank you that um, these folks have come to focus on you, to love you, to treasure you. I pray that you would uh, use these concepts of vocation and calling to uh, help us uh, better understand how we can serve you and what we do and who we are as human beings and how we make decisions. I thank you um, for the gospel, which so, so radically saves us from the mess that we have put ourselves in. I thank you for your love for us, that you'll never let us go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.